Glimpse Bio CEO Caroline Lowe grew up in England with the expectation that she could do anything. After all, her grandmother managed a hotel when she was in her 20s, and her parents always supported her ambitions. And while for most students, organic chemistry was just a weed-out course for pre-med, Caroline actually fell in love with the subject and she pursued her PhD. She then made her career in drug development at Big Pharma, where she built a strong and broad foundation across multiple domains that prepared her well to run a biotech company. In this episode of the Health Biz Podcast, Caroline shares her personal and career background and what it's like to lead a high-profile spin-out from MIT with prominent board members and investors. We also talk about sexism and science and business, and I ask her to explain why she appears in so many podcasts. Like a lot of our guests, one of her book recommendations is The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. She's also a fan of General Stanley McChrystal's book, Team of Teams. Some recent recommended reads include Editing Humanity by Kevin Davies and No Rules Rules by Reed Hastings and Aaron Meyer. I'm your host, David Williams, president of Health Business Group. We help companies like Glimpse make informed strategic decisions. If your healthcare or life sciences company needs strategy consulting support, please contact me, dwilliams at healthbusinessgroup.com. Caroline Lowe, welcome to the Health Biz Podcast. How are you today? I'm very well. Great to be here, David. Thank you for the invitation. Great. It's good to see you. And we're going to talk a lot about what you're doing now, but I also want to wind the clock back to childhood. <laughs> Hopefully it's not a painful a painful memory, but a good memory. And I want to hear about your early life. What was your childhood like? Who were your, some of your early influences? What was your upbringing like? Um, great. So I I grew up in England and you know, had a, had a great childhood and, um, you know, maybe my most significant influence was my, my grandmother. I mean, she was, uh, my mother's mother. She's passed away now, but she was a, she was a wonderful woman. And, you know, she grew up in, you know, 1920s and thirties. And so like a very, very different time. And she was a great inspiration to me. We were very, we were very close. We had a, an incredible bond and, you know, I still, I still think about it now. I still, I wish that she could see, you know, what I have achieved in my career because I was incredibly influenced by what she did. So when, before she married, um, she became the manager of what was a famous uh, sort of independent hotel in the South of England. And so there she was a woman in her twenties managing this hotel. And I think about that now, I mean, goodness, like in the, 1930s. I mean, just sort of yeah. incredible to me. And she was, uh, she was, you know, intelligent and articulate, and uh, you know, she was just she was composed and thoughtful. And she later she she you know raised my mother, and um, you know, and my grandfather was away at the war, and and later you know stayed at home as uh you know as a as a parent as, as many women did of that generation but later went into politics like local politics and was very successful in that and a great advocate for her community and that was my real recollection of her um and seeing what she did to you know focus on the community and growing the community and building her area but also Again, as a female in politics in the you know the seventies and eighties, and then this was of course the, the generation of Margaret Thatcher, and so right. 
that was sort of starting. It just, it, it really uh, made an impression on me. And uh, it sort of led me to believe that I don't think this was conscious at all. And, and I can sort of fast forward a little bit in my career, but it just led me to believe that anything was possible and not in a conscious way, but she encouraged me to sort of look at anything and to think about anything. And my parents were also very like that. My, uh, my father had, um, you know, taken his own path and he had funded his own college education that they were the, my parents were first generation college educated and that they had driven that themselves. And so when we eventually, my siblings and I went to college, uh, you know, we were the first sort of generation that had really had that had actually gone to college formally. And, you know, that was a really big deal. And it, it was sort of this, um, my parents had really just encouraged us to do whatever, to, to feel that anything was possible. Yeah. And, and not in a, not in a, a way that was, you know, particularly sort of aggressive or that was driven, but just that there was sort of this openness to thinking that we could do whatever we wanted. And, you know, I think about that a lot now with my kids and how, you know, how I raised them, but it was, you know, it was great and it was freeing and I I did some amazing things. And I think about, you know, I think about that now in the STEM context as well, but later on, as I went into my career and I started to encounter what I didn't perceive at all at first as sort of a very male dominated and actually a, a, an environment that had a lot of barriers. I just, I didn't realize it. I right. didn't realize it because I had just been brought up in this environment where there were no barriers and there was no perception of those barriers and everything was possible. And it sort of really colored my thinking. So it was wonderful. And I, I attribute a lot to how I think and, you know, how, and now how I try and encourage others to think and, you know, other, particularly other women, you know, developing their careers to think. Yeah, it's a, it's a great story. And I think when you have, um, you grow up from a family where it's not sort of conscious and forced down your throat, but you just, you don't make, you make certain assumptions along the way. And they're just, those are built in on on the right side. It's, it's great. I remember, I think there was a story about Will Rogers, you know, his famous comedian and his, his son. When he grew up, it, it took him a long time to realize it wasn't that everybody's father was funny. You know, it's just sort of mm-hmm. something that you, you grew up with. And I think a lot of girls um, decide or they hear that, you know, well, science or math's not for them, you know, and they sort of mm-hmm. just pick that up in the same way. Just they just see it and they just it doesn't occur to them. And it's good when it's the other way around. Right. Where you just assume you can do anything. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't you? And then, you know, by the time you build up a head of steam, then you get unstoppable. But I think a lot of people go off the track because they make an assumption. This isn't for me you know, that's not for me. And so I think it's, uh, it really is something. And I guess you have to be careful not to do it too consciously with your own, um, you know, in your own child raising. I know my, you know, my wife is a school teacher and she's, she's, uh, she's an electrical engineer of yeah. my background and she teaches math. And a lot of it is to say, you know, math is for girls. It's for everybody. Yeah, exactly. So or- I want to, I want to ask you about organic chemistry now. So because organic <laughs> chemistry, okay. So to me, what I know about organic chemistry the way I used to hear about it was that's the weed out class for people who want to be a doctor. I never knew anybody who actually wanted to take it to study organic chemistry. So I got to hear about that one. Maybe it's different in England. It's not different. And it is that it does have that, um, it does have that connotation for sure. But I, I grew up, I loved science. I loved the experimentation, you know, and I was just always deeply curious and, um, 
you know, I actually, like, I think like many people who go into chemistry, I, I thought deeply about studying medicine. I, in England, you decide actually at 18 to dis, to either study medicine or to study chemistry or any other discipline. I eventually decided to, to do chemistry. Um, I went up one of the hardest programs in the country. I just, I loved this, it, it's this intensity of the scientific exploration and, um, and it wasn't that, you know, I, I guess I, I must've been, you know, had some capability to get into that program, but I just, I wanted that intensity of scientific exploration. And when you start out, it's a generalist program, right? You're, you're doing all elements of chemistry, you know, organic, inorganic, physical chemistry. Um, and, you know, they were all very interesting. I just, I loved this complexity of the exploration in, there was just something about organic chemistry that really got me going. And I, I added an extra year to my program. It was sort of an exploratory program that my university was adding. And I went abroad for a year to what uh, was called a Grand École in, in France. There are these small elite research institutions. And I spent a year doing research uh, and I, it was the most thrilling experience I had ever had. I, mean, I can't describe it in anything like that. It was just, I spent a whole year in a lab doing a research project um, with a, a well-known professor in, in a small field that I was you know, assigned to. I, I didn't have a whole lot of choice where I was assigned, um, but it was just this to really get deeply into research. And you know, at that point, I had already I had been working with a company every summer. I had a, I was sponsored by them. I had been doing research in the summer, and at this point, I was just I was so hooked. I was like, I, I can't imagine doing anything else but this kind of research all the time. Like, this is going to be my life. And you know, th this passion had been kindled in me, and it was just you know, it was more about how can I get more deeply into it? How can I do more? And you know, I was just immersing myself more and more uh, in that universe. Um, you know, I, I think, I guess I was fortunate. I, 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 other people, you know, you have to explore broadly to find things that drive you in this way. For me, I, I, you know, I catalyzed that passion early and I just kept exploring it and organic chemistry was it for me. Um, I, I just I really loved it and I, I still love it now. And we, we joke about it at Glimpse. Like we have a small group of organic chemists yeah. and we all, we all bond together over our love for organic chemistry. Yeah. Um, that sounds like a healthy, a healthy passion. When you, when you, when you got out of school, then how did you think about your, uh, your career from, from there? Yeah, it's, I had planned, uh, I had really planned to go into academia. Um, you know, I, I was there, I was on this sort of like, you know, tenure track, um, trajectory and I did a, I did a postdoc, uh, you know, it was very much that that was exactly where I was going. And, I actually I became quite disillusioned uh, when I when I did my postdoc, and it was really it, it was sort of two different things. Interestingly, the first was uh, I had for my postdoc I had moved from the British system to the U.S. system, and I I I ended up focusing on a piece of research in my postdoc that was very similar to the research that I had done in my PhD, and I had gone to the group that I was in to specifically not do that. And that frustrated me a bit. And I, I know why I ended up doing that research. It was because the, the academic I was working with wanted to solve a specific problem. I had the expertise to do it. It right. made sense. I, I worked on it. I solved it. It was all good. But for me, there was no intellectual, you know, kind of gain. And so 
I sort of hit an intellectual barrier. I wasn't growing. That was frustrating. And the second piece was I started to question, and this was then sort of became the hallmark of where my, the rest of my career went. I sort of started again, I started to question, you know, where is this all going? And, and where's the application of this? And I, I became very curious about uh, sort of how the pharmaceutical industry took sort of the output of academia and really turned it into, you know, pharmaceutical products into drugs um, and that sort of that that conversion and that sort of that confluence of essentially science and business of the clinic and I started to read deeply about that I became very interested in that whole business element and finally decided that that was where I thought I could best use my expertise not continuing to do this basic research that that was a really important piece of the ecosystem but that wasn't going to be where I was I was best skilled that I actually I kind of, I felt that I understood this dimension of this intersection and the intersection was going to be where I was best suited. And so I decided to leave and I, I looked for my first role. And interestingly, kind of fueled by this idea that the intersection was important, I went into an area that was not traditional for an organic chemist. So most organic chemists then go and do drug discovery. Right. And I thought, well, okay, drug discovery, that's great. But if I really want the intersection, it's not about drug discovery, it's about drug development. I need to go and do drug development. And so I actually went and sought a role in drug development, which was pretty unusual maneuver for someone with my background. Yeah. Um, and that then led to the whole career trajectory that I've I've had subsequently. And, you know, I maybe I had a lot of foresight. I, I think I had a lot of foresight. I, yeah. I think that also your career is often, you know, you, you can only see a few years in advance. Right. Um, but that was, there was a very conscious decision to take a step somewhere that was, you know, kind of out of the ordinary to try and have an impact that I perceived my, you know, skills could. And, and as it happened, it turned out to really be true. And there's this, I think there's always this interesting element of luck in your you know, in your career choices, you know, you, you also make, you make your luck too. But uh, in, in my case, I had a lot of luck in my, my first um, career move. And that then cast the die candidly for the rest of my career. Yeah. And, um, you know, we can talk about that a little bit, but it was, it was just, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Um, Great. So one, so 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 it sounds like you know some very strong influences growing up and kind of the pathway cleared mm -hmm. that you could do whatever you wanted. You found your love with organic chemistry, some good locations, some uh, some real um, understanding early on about what path you wanted to be on, and not just sort of drifting along mm -hmm. on on the kind of the obvious path that you were doing. Did you have, and you mentioned the, the role of, of luck and making your own luck, did you have any mentors either kind of along along the way or, you know, how, how has mentorship worked uh, for you? Have, has that been part of your experience? It, it has. And I think mentors have changed over time. Um, there, there have been a, one or two people who have now, I have, I turn to for guidance, you know, uh, probably now over like 20 year window, <laughs> but um, over time, my needs have changed, right? The kinds of questions that I ask have changed. There, the, the, Many of these people will still be people that I'm in touch with. Um, but yes, absolutely. And, and I think 
it's, in, you know, I, I give this advice to people a lot. You need to cultivate those relationships, people who you can turn to. It's generally not just one person. It will be several people. And absolutely, the idea that I don't know everything and I, I, I can't presume to, you know, understand all the kind of aspects and, you know, of, of the decisions and the pathways and the things I should be thinking about. And having someone who has more experience, who has a different worldview, who you can go and ask. And people have diversity of views because sometimes those views will be conflicting, but at least then you can sort of synthesize them. So absolutely, I've I found it invaluable. And sometimes those are point views, right? They're people that you you know and cultivate relationships with and you have a few conversations with them and they help you form some perspective, you know, as you're going through a decision-making process. So, you know, it, th those those mentorships have changed over time, um, but it absolutely been very important to me and remain very important to me, even, you know, in my current role. I mean, maybe more than ever, uh, I, I would say. It's interesting. The idea of a mentor is not just kind of an early career thing, but something that actually, as you have more responsibility and more kind of freedom of action and more places you go, a mentor could could actually paradoxically become more important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. So talk a little bit, I want to get to Glimpse in a, in a minute, but uh, talk a little bit about the kind of the, your roles in, in big pharma. You know, what was that like and, and any, you know, big takeaways uh, from that experience? You know, big pharma is, I think, depending on your viewpoint, it, it, you know, people have different connotations, but I, I found it a wonderful, wonderful experience. And and I say to many people in who are in big pharma that, you know, it, like any job, it's sort of what you make of it. But in general, those large companies, are kind of like the companies I was at, Merck and BMS, uh, they have an incredible you know, pedigree, for want of a better term. They, they have systems and infrastructure and people within them that, has been built over time and is second to none. And if you then take the time as an employee to really integrate yourself into that and to understand it, and understand it not within your domain, but more broadly, and then maybe to move around as well, which is what I did, you can become a broad domain expert and then really grow your skills and expertise and yourself as an individual. And when I give people career advice, I, I say, you know, you need to build kind of the base of your pyramid <laughs> and then decide how you're going to kind of grow up and where you want to go to. But a, a large company really enables you to do that. And so you fast forward, I, I, I thought about that very consciously. And in fact, not just consciously, incredibly deliberately. There were, I always wanted to become a CEO of a smaller biotech company. And there were a set of this was my personal opinion, there were a set of domain expertise that I felt were critically important for me to be able to do that job well. And I said about getting those domain expertise in large pharma. Now, you can argue whether that was right or the wrong thing to do, but I did it in a large pharma company. And I, I categorically believe that I can do my job the way I can today because of that experience. And I mean, it's a choice, right? You don't have to do it. There are other ways to get that experience. And you see CEOs well, people, you know, with roles similar to me who built experience in, there are many diverse ways to do it. But for me, it was a, you know, it was a, it was a great training ground. And some of the very, um, uh, what's the word, very, very uh, sort of core disciplines that I think people tend to um, dismiss, you know, understanding financial planning, understanding strategic planning, 
um, you know, understanding operations, uh, understanding risk management, there, there was just, uh, understanding how to run audits, you know, understanding how to manage board processes. There are lots of things that are, a lot of people roll their eyes at like, well, that sounds really boring. Yeah. The reality is that you need to know how to do all of those things. And if you've seen them done extremely well in a large company and you've been part of managing those processes and you can then roll them into how you think about managing your own organization, you know, that helps you a heck of a lot. And, you know, there's just no, there are no two ways around it. It's a lot easier to have done it and to be able to repeat it and to learn it on the job uh, first time around. I think that's great uh, advice. And as you mentioned, there's a, there's a lot of ways to get to a role that you have. But the idea of going to these larger places that have actually been successful, have the right processes, show you how to do it in a very professional way. I did something a little bit similar in terms of going working at Boston Consulting Group, you know, which is a great, has not gotten a lot exactly. bigger since I was there. But really, yeah. you learn all the, the elements of the consulting craft. You make good connections with people and you know kind of what to do. So when you're doing mm -hmm. something on your own and starting your own firm, then it goes in that direction. So I think that's a that's a very good way to think about it. And you know, the career spans a, a number of uh, years and, and decades, so it takes some time to learn all of these uh, things and putting that that foundation mm -hmm. in place. So now let's turn to to Glimpse, uh, Glimpse Bio. And so maybe first of all, you know, I love the name of the company, by the way, and it has, of course, a G L Y <laughs> instead of a G L I, but Glimpse, and it's like it's like it looks yep. like a glimpse at Glimpse, but. You know, what does the company do? And then why, you know, also the, why the initial focus that you have in particular uh, disease areas? Mm -hmm. So we develop, it's a, it's a novel technology. We develop real-time activity-based biomarkers. So we have a new technology that can both detect disease and uh, monitor response to disease real-time. And you know, this is really exciting because... Today in diagnostics, there are many, you know, a couple of things. There are many diseases that we can't detect well. Uh, it's very hard to detect response to, to, to treatment or to disease evolution. And having a diagnostic that can do that and can do it real time is sort of activity-based, allows us to be able to give, you know, clinically actionable information both to patients and to, to, to physicians. And... Uh, the, the activity is based on proteases. So these are abundant proteins in the body. There are between 570 and 600. And the, the key is that um, there are groups of these proteases that are active in pretty much every aspect of human health and disease. And so sort of the, the basic way our technology works is we do some basic research. We understand which groups of these proteases are present in or active in a specific disease state. And th that activity could be up or down. And then we code for that. And we, we use these custom biomarker panels to, to detect that. So simple idea, a little complex in, in application, right? Of course, as any new technology is. But right now we have this indication in NASH, as you pointed out. So NASH is a fatty liver disease. Uh, it affects about 20 million people in the U.S. in its most severe form, which affects somewhere in the region of about those 3 million of those people. Um, it leads to cirrhosis. So it's a very severe you know, liver uh, disease that eventually leads to uh, folks needing, unfortunately, liver transplant. It's, uh, it's a very severe condition. And once it starts to progress, it, it's actually irreversible. And so, you know, it, it's a real problem. And there are a lot of companies who are developing therapeutics for it right now, um, and some hopefully will start to come to the market next year. Um, but the hardest thing with NASH is actually there aren't any good diagnostics for it. And 
today the standard of care, would you believe, is a what's called a liver biopsy. It's it's a needle. Doesn't, doesn't uh, sound good, does it? it? It doesn't sound good, and it's not good. And and you know, if for many patients, unfortunately, when you know, if they need a diagnosis and they end up having this needle biopsy. It's a painful and comfortable treatment. You know, many patients who have to have it don't end up having it repeated. It's like a, it's like a punishment. It's a it's ho- it's horribly painful, and you know, first of all, you know, it's hard to repeat frequently. You can't repeat it more than you know, with sort of a year, eighteen month interval. But also, it's just so horrible that patients don't want to have it done again. I mean, it's really horrible. And so, having a diagnostic like ours you know, would be a step change in being able to diagnose the disease. And then also, you know, eventually when therapeutics are available, being able to manage treatment. Um, So NASH is a highly protease mediated disease. There are lots of proteases involved. And so we've been able to code for those. And then we can both diagnose the disease with great fidelity, as well as track the treatment. Um, So that's, you know, one uh, sort of our tip of the spear, if you want, our first indication uh, but you mentioned cancer. Um, interestingly, the fundamental uh, biological pathway in uh, in T cell killing. So when you have uh, when you have uh, cancer killing pathway in your body, T cells are killed, and the fundamental biological pathway there is involves granzyme B, and granzyme B is a protease. So we can detect that, and we can then uh, build a diagnostic. Um, so same idea. And, you know, the really interesting thing here is that, um, we could of course think about a diagnostic that could be used to, you know, detect cancer and so forth. But the the more interesting application in this case is, uh, you know, the many, there are many therapeutics out there, um, including some of the, you know, the new immunotherapies. The interesting application is to collaborate with drug developers. Uh, they have a lot of, uh, difficulty understanding in early drug development, whether drugs are responding. And it's one of the reasons that the pharma pipelines are uh, are actually quite slow at advancing drugs in early development. Uh, it's a background that I have. And, right. uh, and, you know, it was a big frustration for us. It's a big frustration for, you know, all drug development companies. And so having a, a diagnostic that can really help with that would be a substantial advance. It would speed therapies forward, which are just much needed in the in the cancer area. Of course, there's an eventual application for patients who are being treated to understand whether they're responding. Um, but, you know, the initial application is in the drug development arena with hands down. It's just a much, you know, real, real need there for sure. You know, when we work with startup companies and when I interview uh, executives from earlier kind of, you know, mid-stage companies a lot in healthcare services and in information technology, they learn things from their customers, from their partners, and they they do some sort of a pivot. And it's easier to mm-hmm. do, I think, in services or, you know, with a software product. Mm-hmm. But the same kind of pressures could could apply, I think, in a in a company mm-hmm. that's doing a you know diagnostic mm-hmm. or, or a therapeutic. Have you had those sort of pressures and have there been any pivots um, you know, in in the company? Yeah, no, no, no pressures for a pivot. Um I, I think how in general you, you need to think about you know any technology is that there's there is an essential process of evolution right the technology is always going to evolve over time I mean we have Bob Langer on our board and you know Bob uh, has been involved in the founding I think of over 220 companies yeah. I mean, just we'll have to keep it current yeah. we'll have to timestamp the uh, podcast here so, it, it, so it exactly. doesn't send out a date. I, I, I think the last time I asked him, it was 225. And I I want to say that was like well over a year ago. Um, (laughs) So it's probably a lot more than that now. But, you know, 
he is, um, you know, he's he's incredibly prolific, and and he he brings a lot of value to us on our board. And and he he makes he makes a really interesting observation about this, that you know that there should be a real expectation that technology that the foundational technology does evolve when it goes into a company that that it shouldn't be static right it shouldn't be that you know n years on you're still using the same generation of a technology or using the technology in the same way that the that the process of building it into a company is by definition kind of like a birthing <laughs> and then then there's a there's a toddler and then there's a teenager and so forth or you know and it, so there is this natural process of evolution. And so, of course, you know, our technology is going through that uh, that, that evolution. Um, and, and I think that happens in any company. Now, you know, the, uh, some companies may experience something that's, you know, a more profound pivot. But in general, this notion of technological evolution, I think, is very common. Uh, and it's a, it's part of, at least in our space, the process of, you know, of scientific discovery and and development. <clears throat> so, you know, you mentioned that you obviously had a, you know, a long career uh, on the big pharma side, well prepared across a number of, of different domains. And yet when you come to Glimpse, there's a few things that are different. One, it's obviously a, you know, much smaller organization. It's also diagnostics and maybe even devices, you know, compared mm -hmm. with drugs. And then you're also working with a technology that is, you know, spun out of a, a out of a university. And so what are some of the unique elements that maybe either you weren't prepared for or that are, you know, that are, that are novel that you really had to address, uh, you know, in your time at Glimpse? Mm -hmm. I'd really thought deeply about this process of coming to run a startup. And so I'm going to say it wasn't that I was prepared for everything, but I spent a lot of time back to kind of the mentorship, right? I, I had talked to a lot of people. I had really thought about it. I had really thought about what my expectations were, but also the expectations were in building a company at the stage that I was taking it over. One of the key differences from you know, any larger company, no matter what its aspiration is to a smaller company, is about speed and focus, right? You're, you're naturally focused in a very small domain and you're going to move much faster. No matter the aspiration of a large company to move fast, you are going to move extremely quickly. And that, in a lot of ways, is the attraction the ability to move so quickly and to move with such focus, it's a powerful uh, drug in a lot of ways, right? It's, it, it, it's a real adrenaline high to be able to, to do this. You have to be careful not to, um, first of all, lose focus, but secondly, not to get sucked in by the speed, right? That you, yeah. you know, you, you make decisions too quickly. Um, I mean, sometimes, you know, we, we make decisions, you know, in an hour on, you know, very significant data um, we also have to make sure that we we have all the right information. We have all the right people in the room that we're not missing anything. And, you know, we, we put in place enough process to make sure that we we're careful about that. I, I think there's always a, there's always a risk that you get sucked in by that, you know, ability just to do things very quickly. And it, it sort of leads you off track. Um, you know, in terms of what we're doing, I, you know, I'm a drug developer by background. You heard that. And so we're a, you know, we're a diagnostic company, but we're interestingly what I would call kind of an intersection company. So we sit at the intersection of diagnostics and therapeutics. And that was why I came to Glimpse. It was because we're using diagnostics to solve a problem in the world of therapeutics. And 
you know, it's a problem that spans, you know, drug discovery through drug development all the way through to how patients are diagnosed and treated. And the diagnostic is very much integrated into that process. And there's sort of this interweaving, if you want, that's very much the world that I came from. And a lot of our development is, you know, while we are developing a diagnostic, a lot of it draws on, uh, you know, on, on therapeutic uh, approaches. And so we're not actually that far removed. And so there was a lot of logic, uh, if you want, to my my background. Um, in terms of, you know, the, the question you asked about the sort of the university, I, I think this is this is kind of the wonder of the ecosystem. Yeah. You know, and it, it's actually incredibly powerful being um, connected to that ecosystem, right? So our founding technology came from there. We've continued to draw on the evolution of that technology. Um, you know, our scientific founder, Sangeet Bhatia, is, is uh, you know, is an observer on our board and, and, and still contributes to the company. And, um, you know, and so we have that, you know, we, we still have, all of that available to us. And as our technology continues to evolve and, and as her science continues to evolve, we still have access to it. And so there's a lot of power in that intersection, right? And and everyone talks about that ecosystem, right? Well, we live that ecosystem. Right. And I, I, you know, it's incredibly valuable. There's no doubt about it. Now, you mentioned uh, one of your board members, Bob Langer, who is, is maybe, mm-hmm. you know, the best known uh, broadly, but you have a lot of impressive and accomplished board members that mm-hmm. are certainly, you know, well-known and famous within within their fields uh, that, that you work in. I mean, how mm-hmm. do you use a board like that and what are the, what are the challenges? Mm-hmm. We're wonderfully privileged with our board and, you know, I've been able to draw my experience at, you know, BMS and, and Merck where... You see how a, you know, an accomplished board with a breadth of experience can really help guide a company. And how I think about it is, so I've been very conscious in, in how I, I've built our board. And, uh, you know, I think about our board as part of our team. <laughs> I mean, it's as simple as that, right? And so in the same way that, you know, I hire people with, you know, domain expertise who I want to contribute broadly to the growth of the company, I, I've brought on our board in exactly the same way. And so, you know, we're fortunate we have a, a technology that has a lot of potential and there's there are very high aspirations for it. And we're we're realizing those aspirations as, you know, as we speak. We've been able to bring on a board who share those aspirations and are, you know, leaders in their domains who are now advising us, you know, collectively as a board, but also as individuals and are able to bring their networks to bear to support us as well. And so we use them in two ways, of course, as a board, but I I use them as individuals. I'm able to talk to them. I get their advice individually, but also if there are things that we need to do that in our areas of domain expertise, we ask them to help us and they they willingly collaborate. And we're just, you know, incredibly fortunate to have um, their you know, their, their networks and their expertise to support us. I mean, it's, you know, it, again, it's, it's, a, it's another piece of the team, right? Um, in, in this case, just, a, you know, a superstar team. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, if it were the NBA, you'd have to trade some of these players because you can't have so much talent in one spot, but uh, good. Now, listen, I'm going to ask you an oddball question and I hope you're not going to be offended by it, but the question is, Uh-oh. why do you do so many podcast interviews? Uh why do I do so many podcasts? Yeah. Well, I guess I didn't know I did so many podcasts. Fair enough. But now, um, 
I guess now, uh, now you ask me, um, you know, I really like, I do like the conversation format, yeah. um, you know, and I, I like the whole sort of the, the storytelling thing. I, I've been really fortunate, you know, I've had a lot of really interesting experiences and I, I think, you know, this whole, you talked about mentorship. I think there's a, there's a, there's a dimension to mentorship, which is not just about that I've been able to receive people's mentorship, but I like to mentor back and, I do that a little bit. I have people I mentor, but that's a tiny fraction of what I think I can give back. And so a piece of this the podcast is being able to share a little bit back and a little bit more broadly, and, and particularly kind of the format that you have here, David, is, you know, I can share a bit of my career experience. And for people who, you know, are, you know, thinking about their careers, their career evolution, if that can help, I, you know, it's a, it's a little bit of a, you know, an, a, a way for me to share more broadly. So... It's simply about that. It's I, I love the conversation. I, I like the the ability to share a little bit more, uh, you know, and, and to than to give back in in some sense. Um, good. Well, that's a good answer. It's a good straightforward answer to a kind of out of left field question. So <laughs> much appreciated. So last question, which is one that I do ask everybody, uh, mm-hmm. which is just about you know what are you reading and anything you would recommend. Mm-hmm. So a couple of books. One I just finished and what I'm reading, I just read Editing Humanity by Kevin Davis. Uh-huh. And I, I really enjoyed that. He was the founding editor of Nature Genetics. You know, it's the whole CRISPR story, genome editing. It's super well written. You know, it's, um, I, and I, to- I totally recommend it. I'm partway through uh, No Rules Rules by Reed Hastings and Erin Meyer. Yeah. Um, and one thing I think a lot about in my company, or in general, I've always thought about this a lot, is the whole notion of culture and how to build culture and what the culture should be and how you sustain that and what the impact is on performance. And, you know, Netflix is a, you know, sort of the epitome of uh, how culture has driven a specific performance. Right. And so this book, you know, Reed actually wrote this book and it is very interesting. And he he wrote it with an organizational psychologist and it's just, it's absolutely fascinating. And uh, Aaron studied Netflix uh, for this extended period. It's, it, it's very, very interesting. I, I read a lot, but this, these are two books that I kind of come back to. Uh, it's rare that I read a book multiple times, but um, this is one book that I dip back into again and again, and I've actually like marked sections of it. Um, the, the Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. Um, I, now, I have to know, tell you, by the way, this is one that's actually been uh, mentioned by at least three of my guests, and I actually went and read it as a result. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So go go ahead. But that's yeah. yeah. So, so that's a that's a really good book. Yeah. Enough said. Um, and then also, uh, Team of Teams by you know General Stanley McChrystal. I I I really like that book, and you know I, I read it when it first came out, and just that philosophy. You know, I like the you talked about BCG, right? The the adaptive team uh, philosophy um, that. Uh, you know, that they published, I think, way back, like yeah. 2012, maybe 2011. And there's a lot that's kind of, that the, the, the also McChrystal talks about that's related to that in Team of Teams. And, you know, I, I that was also, I think, a very interesting, um, a, a very interesting book as well. So I read Great. a lot of business intersection related books. No, they sound, they sound good. And I was like, I'm adding to my reading list, but luckily that one, uh, I've already, I've already, I've already got that one. I, I did enjoy it uh, as well. And yeah. um, I think there's a Kanye West quote to start it off. I showed it to my 18 year old and he's like, okay, yeah, he's, it, it sounds like it's worth reading. Um, yeah. in, in, uh, in any case, uh, Caroline Lowe, 
president and CEO of Glimpse Bio. I want to say thank you very much uh, for your time and for your insights today. Uh, my pleasure, David. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Great. You've been listening to the Health Biz Podcast with me, David Williams, president of Health Business Group. I conduct in-depth interviews with leaders in healthcare business and policy. If you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe on your favorite service. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe on your second and third favorite services as well. There's more good stuff to come, and you won't want to miss an episode. If your organization is seeking strategy consulting services in healthcare, check out our website, healthbusinessgroup.com.